I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. Whoa, like a, a sin that God won't forgive? Like what's going on there? Well, in the context of Jesus saying that, it's actually a lot better than it sounds, and it all has to do with Jesus's identity. So let's talk about it together. Now, before we get to the unforgivable sin, which I promise we will get to, we kind of need some context. So let me ask you some questions. Actually, one main question. Who are you? Like, what is it that makes you you? What is it that is makes you your unique role in the world, right? A lot of us would say it's our, our gender, maybe our race or our orientation, maybe our job or our relationships, um, our age or our nationality, maybe our political leanings, you know, or our personality traits. See, our identity is the driving force of our lives. It uh, influences the choices we make, which then determines the story of our lives. Like, am I somebody who, who lies or am I somebody who tells the truth? Am I somebody who can work in the group or somebody who just looks out for themselves? Am I somebody who's responsible for others or only responsible for myself or maybe not that responsible at all? When that person is trying to you know, merge and cut me off, do I let them in or do I gun it? That person says something that offends me. Do I take that offense? How do I react in that situation? That all has to do with how we see ourselves in the world, what our identity actually is. And if we can understand who we are, we can understand our place in the world. So at the core, what makes us us? How do we, and how do we find and cultivate our true identity, like an overall lens through which to see the world? Now, surprisingly, I think we find that in the story of Jesus. And if we asked Jesus, who are you? Uh, you know, what, what do you think your identity is? On the surface, we'd, you know, we'd see that he was a, uh, a male who was Jewish in, mid, in the first century Middle East Israel. Uh, he worked as a craftsman. But as we've seen, as we've been going through the story of Jesus in the book of Mark, we've seen that he said some other things about who he was too, right? Like he said he was the one bringing the kingdom of God. He assumed the authority to forgive sin, which is authority that only God had. He kept calling himself the, the son of man, which is a direct allusion to the book of Daniel. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. He, he assumed that title. And as we saw in the last episode, he chose 12 main followers to follow him, saying that he is the one recreating uh, a new Israel with these 12 tribes types of thing. And when demons called him the son of God, he didn't tell them they were wrong and to shut up. He just said, hey, don't blow my cover yet. Like he didn't disagree with them. And those big claims created some really big reactions. See, Jesus's big claims of his true identity created some truly big reactions, especially as we'll see with his family. One time, Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried, and a better translation there is, they went to take, care, to take him away. 
He's out of his mind, they said. See, Jesus had been healing. He'd been casting demons out with just his words, and people are amazed. Obviously, and they're like flocking to him, and they can't even find time to eat. But those who think they know him best, which, as you know, probably means they also think they know what's best for him, heard the buzz. They heard the claims he's been making. And their conclusion? He's lost his grip on reality. And this story right here, where his family thinks he's crazy, is actually one of the main proofs of the fact that Jesus maybe actually did rise from the dead. See, if you're trying to make up a story about an executed preacher, you wouldn't really, who rose from the dead, you really wouldn't include a story that his family thinks he's crazy. And another fact with this story, one of his brothers, James, who went to go take care of Jesus because Jesus had obviously, you know, lost his grip on reality, after Jesus' death, becomes one of the main leaders of the church in Jerusalem, a church that was dedicated to worshiping his big brother. Now, what would change his mind from thinking his brother's crazy, watching him die, and then actually starting a group that worships him as God? Probably seeing your brother die and come back to life, right? Well, none of that's happened yet. And so his family is worried. They're worried about his sanity. They're probably worried about his safety. And in that culture, they're worried about their family reputation. And so they leave their village to go get him. And before he really gets the attention of some people who will really do something about it. Now, unfortunately for them, it's too late. Some important people have already heard about Jesus' claims and, and what's going on. And they have like a darker opinion of who Jesus really is. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from, Jeru from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So these teachers of religious law, they come from the center of Jewish religion, Jerusalem. And they have, you know, they're pretty important people. They're like the, the leaders of the religion. And they come looking for a fight. Like, why? Why do they come looking to fight Jesus? Because he doesn't fit their picture of what a good teacher should be. He, he has no credentials. He's been saying that their way of doing religion is empty and ultimately will become obsolete, challenging their authority. But they can't deny the amazing miracles he's doing and the fact that demons have to obey what he says. And so, since he disagrees with them and they are the experts of God's law, well then, the only other conclusion? Satan. Which, you know, leads, it seems like a pretty big leap. But, you know, it's not that big of a leap when you think about it because the identities we create for ourselves can blind us to the realities around us. And so what do they, what do, they do? They try to change public opinion. They try to label him. They try to control the narrative, right? So they say he's, he's possessed by Satan, which the, the word is like the accuser. That's the title for, for the devil. And the, the accuser who accuses God's people. They say that's where Jesus is getting his power. Like from the chief demon, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness is, is ruling Jesus. Now, in the view of the biblical writings and Jesus, there are two spiritual kingdoms that are around our less real reality that we see. There's the kingdom headed by Satan, the accuser, which is the kingdom of darkness and evil and death and filth and sin. And then there's the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love and light and peace and joy. And the leaders are telling the people, look, you all might think he's doing good, but he's tricking you. He's actually an agent of evil. And the connotation there in the Greek is that they're not accusing Jesus like in front of everybody. They're like going around and whispering about Jesus and saying, yeah, he's, he's of Satan. He's, he's of the devil. And uh, Jesus hears about it or senses it somehow. And 
he's had enough. And so he tries to, he actually brings these whispers out of the darkness and into the light and challenges them head on. Jesus called them over. He's like, what are you talking about me? Like, get over here. And responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Jesus says, you think I'm possessed by Satan? Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I've been around for a while. I've heard some dumb things. In fact, like, it makes no sense. What I'm doing when I cast demons out of people is I'm releasing them from Satan's grip. Like, Satan's kingdom is losing ground to God's kingdom. Why would he do that to himself? And let's just, you know, entertain the fact, the idea that maybe, okay, so I am from Satan. What's still happening is Satan is losing ground and God is being, God is gaining ground. So either way, I'm right. I'm the one who's bringing in the kingdom of God and destroying the kingdom of Satan. And then Jesus reveals, like, what's actually going on with these miracles. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. See, Jesus is saying, I'm not just healing people. I'm not just casting out demons. I'm freeing people. See, he's saying he's in the process of freeing all of humanity from the grip of the kingdom of darkness. He's tied up the strong man, Satan, because he's the stronger one. And now Satan is tied up and he's plundering his house. He's taking away from Satan what was once his people. Humanity has been captive in the kingdom of darkness. And now the true king is here and the fake king can't do anything about it. See, in Jesus, what Jesus is saying is every time you see me cast out a demon, it's another victorious battle in my rescue invasion of this world. See, Jesus claimed to be the beginning of God's great rescue invasion to save humanity. And Jesus' ministry is the decisive turning point in the battle between good and evil to, for, the, for the battle of the world and all of humanity. And he's fulfilling God's promise from, from the very beginning in Genesis. And this is, this is God talking to the serpent, or who represents Satan. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And it's singular here. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So Jesus is saying, I'm not working for Satan. I'm kicking his And it's in this context that Jesus talks about what has become to be known as the unforgivable sin. And it all has to do with what we say about Jesus' identity. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He says, I tell you the truth. And we got to stop there because often if you've, if you read the Bible a lot or the gospels a lot, Jesus says like, you hear him say truly, truly, or the old way, verily, verily, like I tell you the truth. Uh, I say truly, I say to you. Well, what? that's doing. He's actually making a really big assumption of authority. Like he's speaking in his own authority. The teachers of that time would be like, you know, well, you know, rabbi who so-and-so says this, or, you know, according to Genesis 28, 45, which I don't think it's not a real verse, this, this says this. No, but Jesus is saying, what I'm saying is true. And you can trust it because I'm the one saying it. Like no other teacher at the time would even dare to teach that way. And so what is he saying? What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? That, that's a sin that won't be forgiven with eternal consequences. Well, Mark actually tells us here. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. So listen, 
the unforgivable sin isn't like a particular sin God hates over like all the others. It's the unforgivable sin is doing exactly what these religious leaders were doing, refusing to see the work of God and calling it evil instead of good, attributing the power and work of God's personal presence, the Holy Spirit, to the work of Satan. And once these leaders have decided that Jesus was evil and of Satan, there's no chance that they would actually come to him for forgiveness because they've closed their minds and they've closed their heart to who he really is. N.T. Wright puts it like, he, he explains it like it's a conspiracy theory, right? Once, once you believe a certain idea, a certain theory, all the evidence you see around you will only point to confirming your belief because that's what you're looking for, right? You'll be blind to the truth no matter what other evidence you see. It's like when, and T. Wright says, it's like when uh, if you believe the doctor who wants to operate you is really only trying to hurt you and is evil, you're never going to let him actually work on you. And when, our, when your heart is this stubborn, like these religious leaders, you'll see God working and refuse to see it as good and only see it as evil. It's denying the work and power and identity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, look, this isn't about my miracles. This is about who I actually am. Do you believe me or not? If you stubbornly refuse to accept my true identity, you won't be able to find your place in my kingdom. In fact, if we don't accept Jesus's real identity, we can never find our true identity. Now, as all this is happening with the religious leaders, Jesus' family is still traveling to go get Jesus. And they finally arrive. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was kind of rude, right? Doesn't that seem kind of rude? Like Jesus just like say, hey guys, hang on. You know, my mom's here. They've traveled a long way. Let, just let me go talk to them and see what they want. And he just kind of you know, brushes them off and makes them an object lesson. Like it seems a little rude. But in that time, it was even worse. See, this was shockingly offensive. For the Jews, like the family was the basic fabric of what it meant to be the people of God. Like keeping the Sabbath, the food laws, and honoring your family was like, those were like huge things. It, uh, if you were a loyal, if you're loyal to your family, that meant you were loyal to the God of your people and the history of your family. Like it was like this pillar of being a Jewish person was being loyal to your family. And to disrespect those ties was to undermine so much of the society. And it would be doing the unthinkable. And through Jesus, God here is doing the unthinkable. He's creating a new people, a new family by breaking all the old ties from which we create our own identities, including our family. And this new family shares an overarching identity, doing the will of God. Basically, as we've seen in Mark, it's believing and repenting because the kingdom of God is near and being a disciple of Jesus. And all of it, this whole family, is based on who Jesus is and what he is doing and what he has done. See, in the new family of Jesus, our primary identity is Jesus. And that's really the main point of what I'm talking about here. In the new family of Jesus, our primary identity is Jesus. 
and everyone is invited to join that family. Notice the inclusion there. See, they say, hey, your mother and, and brothers want to come talk to you. And he says, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He throws in the sisters, showing like everyone sitting in that group is invited to be part of his family. Now, in the story we just run over, we really see three main reactions to what Jesus says about who he is, right? The, his family thought he was crazy. The religious leaders thought he was evil and of the devil and lying. And his followers, who he says are his true family, trusted what he said about himself and based their identities on him. And what we see here really is, maybe you've heard it, the, the famous C.S. Lewis idea of, you know, Jesus, there was really three options about who Jesus was. Either he was crazy, he was an evil liar, or he actually is who he said he is, like e uh, Lord, right? Now, if you're familiar with this, maybe you've heard it more, not like a idea, but more like a, a fight. Like This idea of liar, lunatic, Lord has been used as a debate for Christians for a long time and kind of used as a, as a, I gotcha to unbelievers, right? Like those are your two options, gotcha. But really, it's not, not supposed to be a tactic. It's supposed to be a question for us. Jesus didn't come so that we could have ammunition to argue with each other. It's a question for all of us. And whether it's the first time you've heard the question or maybe you've heard it for a hundred times, the question of Jesus's identity is a question we must all personally answer. Like, how do you actually answer the question, who was Jesus? Not, the, not what is the answer you, you know you're supposed to say, right? The answer that you've been told is right. Well, he's the son of God. But what does how you've based your identity what does how you've based your life, what do your reactions in your life say you actually believe about Jesus's identity? Does the view, does your view of the world and, and how you interact with others actually say that you think he was lying or crazy or that he was truly God on earth? See, the proof is what we use to create our identities. Our fam is it our family, our income, our race, our gender, our education, our job, our role, our country, our religion, meaning the rules we follow to make us feel good about ourselves? Like, is that real? Is that what we based our identity on? Or is it on Jesus? See, we might say, yeah, Jesus is God on earth. But our actions and our choices and our reactions often show that deep down, we don't think he really was telling the truth. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then we need to be, sh we need to be who he said we should be. People whose lives are focused on doing the will of God by bringing the love and joy and acceptance and peace of the kingdom of God to the world around us. Remember, in the family of Jesus, our primary identity is Jesus. And when we choose that core, that primary identity, everything else falls into its proper place. People become more important than political positions. Love becomes more important than rules. Peace and joy conquer fear and anger. And we are all invited to base our core identity on the most loving and joyful and powerful person to ever live, Jesus. So, with all this, what do we do? Well, I, th I think there's three things we can do. First, we can answer the question of Jesus' identity for ourselves. Answer the question of Jesus' identity for yourself. Take time to explore it for yourself. Maybe, you know, read the rest of the book of Mark. Two books that are really helpful in deciding who Jesus really is is actually Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where that liar, lunatic lord thing comes from, and The Problem of Jesus by Mark Clark. You can find these at any local bookstore. What else could we do? Well, if you end up 
believing him, that he actually was who he said he was, tell him. Tell him, I believe that you are king of the universe. I want to follow you as king of the universe. And if you get to that point, or maybe you've gotten to that point. Second, I say let's identify any identities that you have placed above your identity as a member of Jesus' family. Now, most of the identities we choose, right? Like, you know, our political leanings or our, our, our family or any of those things. They're not bad, right? That's, that is part of who we are. It really does make us who we are. But if we want to truly follow Jesus, these identities cannot be our primary identity. And so if we really want to follow Jesus, we really want him to be our identity, then we need to make a list. So make a list of who you are, how you would describe yourself. And look at, maybe look at your recent arguments, your recent posts, the maybe the things that have fired you up in the last year. Have those come from the identity of Jesus or from other identities taking over, taking priority over Jesus? And then third, once you've done that, practice being a member of his family. Like live out your primary identity in Jesus by doing the will of God. Like Jesus said, do the will of God. Live out your love and trust in Jesus through your love of others. So let's end it with how we began it. Who are you? What makes you, you? What identity is the driving force for your life? Look, when we die, our jobs, our education, our nationality, our political leanings, our basketball team won't matter. None of those identities will last. What will last is our identity in Jesus himself. Every other identity will fall away. The identity Jesus offers rises above everything else. See, when the world doesn't make sense and we can't find our place in it, Jesus offers to show us exactly who we are in him. We find the life Jesus offers now when we choose to accept the identity he offers now. Thanks for watching this week's content put out by Cross Creek Community Church. Uh, thanks for joining us on this journey through Mark, the story of Jesus. Uh, there'll be lots of content for you available online, YouTube, and podcast. But also don't forget, we meet in person on Sundays at 4.30 in South Salem at 525 Idlewood Drive. So find out more on our website, yourcrosscreek.com. We also have uh, stuff for kids this summer, some great lessons put out by the Bible Project. So we're really excited about some of the things that are happening over at Cross Creek. And we're just really glad to see you here online. Uh, send us your information via the welcome form. Say hello. Uh, request a Bible, request prayer, or join a small group. Uh, it's all online there for you, and we'll see you next week.